welcome back to Estranged. Uh, really excited to have another guest on today. So I'm talking with Grafton Tanner. Grafton is a writer, critic and musician from Georgia. He uh, recently had a book come out with Zero Books. Was it kind of November last year? December, December 11th. December. And then you had a, a previous one, so Babbling, Babbling Corpse, was that the 2018? 16. It's old. 2016. I, uh, so this is the thing. I mean, 2016 seems like yesterday, but also, yeah, the years are passing very, very fast. Um, also, I get kind of with uh, Zero Books titles, like really, they're really long. So I feel like I can't, it's, it's Babbling Corpse and then Colon. Vapor, vaporwave and the Commodification of Ghosts. It's a, it's a very long title drawn out. Exactly. No, because we had to... Ben Burgess on recently and I like literally got every single title wrong and then I realized like this is a thing and it's only zero books books because you know you want to get the whole thing in uh, and then your latest book is the circle of the snake nostalgia and utopia in the age of big tech there we go so um I was very interested to talk to you after watching a video with you on the zero books youtube channel where you talked about uh the recent Netflix documentary that got everybody freaked out and uh, kind of analyzing things, but in kind of maybe really reductive way, which is why I really liked your YouTube uh, talk because you kind of picked apart the arguments that maybe seem at face value to be the radical ones, but they're really not. Uh, looking at um, the social dilemma, uh, which portrayed uh, people who worked or previously worked in tech um, analyzing, you know, why it's such a, a, a terrible thing to have sort of social media accounts. But as I said, what I really liked about your analysis was that it was kind of a little bit more thoughtful and kind of second degree on like, actually, yes, this is a critique, but we can't trust these people anyway. Um, so maybe we should start off a little bit with like the economic questions of tech, uh, why it's particularly uh, led us to this kind of um, very complicated moment and what it is maybe about like the um labor dynamics or um yeah how how it fits into maybe an economic framework and how maybe we've been duped by clever marketing and the the, the ideology of promise you know which is like the the great ideology of capital that like we this is something new this doesn't adhere to the rules and it's just only going to be of benefit to us yeah absolutely yeah um well, and you talk about like, uh, you mentioned like a sort of a marketing ideology, I think, well, I thought about like the idea of smart washing, which is itself a marketing tactic to try to convince people that um, devices that operate within a network are smarter and therefore better than ones that don't. And we're not always so smart as humans. And so we need the smart product to help us out when really, I mean, those we, we know that those devices are essentially just like ways to call massive amounts of information on people. And, and one of the effects of that is kind of this normalization of surveillance of everyday life. And that's been going on, you know, for, I mean, you know, 10, 15 years, kind of gradual um, acclimating to, to surveillance and being okay with, with being watched. And there is a little bit of pushback, of course, with, um, things like facial recognition technology where people are saying, okay, wait a minute, like, I don't, you know, my phone can listen in or whatever can ping the cell tower about what I'm looking up. And I don't want some, I don't want this minority report, you know, 
eye scanning thing to figure out who I am. Um, and of course, there's all these implications with facial recognition technology as it relates to uh, prejudice and racism. I mean, you know, these things have biases encoded in them. We know this now. Um, so, and all of that does come from the massive growth of these companies that we collectively refer to as big tech, Apple, mm -hmm. Amazon, Google, Facebook, the whole, all of them, um, that could only ever really get so big uh, because of certain deregulatory measures that allow them to get that absolutely, big, basically. Absolutely. Um, I know I just find it just fascinating. You know, this year, obviously, it's a great year of inequality. And I was just reading an article about, you know, especially, well, I mean, I do, I'm guessing it's exactly the same in the, the US, but those that um, are uh, having to take on debt to, to you know, exist are, um, you know, low middle class, working class people. And that the people who are getting the most out of governments are um, the wealthier. Um, but that basically, you know, inequality is increasing. Um, obviously, debt just increases inequality. But that, oh, this miracle of, oh, Elon Musk now has nearly 200 billion and, and um, Jeff Bezos nearly 200 billion. It's because, you know, they've created this product that, you know, is so innovative and it generates so much money. But that actually, you know, that's just, that's just a complete lie, <laughs> you know, that it's only possible because of, um, deregulation that was put in place, you know, of, of uh, laws, et cetera, that were put in place to prevent these kinds of things happening in the first place, but that somehow it's magically different because tech is so useful to our lives and it's all so innovative and it's going to, you know, push us towards the new frontier of a, of a better future. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, these, these things, I mean, uh, this is something that David Graeber um, mm -hmm. yeah. wrote about. Um, and he said, you know, like, there really isn't a word for it, but it's not necessarily that the corporations just got, you know, they just play the rules of the competitive game and the mm -hmm. ones that rose to the top and won out were the ones that were the, just the best and worked the hardest and whatever, whatever. Uh, you know, he said, no, it's like, you have to, you have, to have the permission of, of, state institutions to be able to get so big, you know, and, um, and then to be able to like manufacture your products for, for cheap, you know, in various countries around the world uh, also can only be allowed thanks to certain free trade policies. Um, otherwise you don't have the smartphone. I mean, you can't, no, you sorry. cannot have Nike shoes and smartphones without outsourced labor mm -hmm. in other countries. Um, there's an excellent book called Dying for an iPhone that uh, Haymarket just put out. And uh, it, it talks about, you know, the history of the labor practices of Apple and um, Foxconn, the, you know, the company that that actually manufactures the products. Um, and it's like, you know, that doesn't ever that that is completely not talked mm -hmm. about in the social dilemma. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's certain things that can be, um, you know, talks of certain injustices that are able to be talked about at a given time, but some that we, you know, ideology has to completely paper over but you know i i live in northern ireland so the island of ireland but not with under the um remit of the irish government but there i don't know if you know about the the apple tax uh case 2016 the eu basically uh, apple owes ireland um or owed then about 20 billion in tax which at the time was worth about 10% uh, yeah, ten percent of the Irish GDP, because it's a very small country. Um, and the EU wanted to instigate, you know, um, a forced payment 
of the of this money to Ireland. It's basically there's this double tax loop where they're not. They're, I mean, uh, Dublin is full of t- uh, tech companies, but it's very complicated. But a, a rule where the, the tax is counted through Ireland and they don't have to pay. And obviously, the Irish government, um, short sightedly perhaps, but I mean because they're so reliant on this uh, uh, massive corporation. And I mean, huge historical reasons as to why they fell into this mode of. Um, I am loath to use the word generating money because it's actually like stealing money from normal people. But event, you know, in the long run, but you know, they 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 didn't enforce the uh, the payment of it, even though the EU kind of wanted to. Um, but yeah, I mean, and there's all this um, you know, this sort of bootstrappy kind of horrible thing of like, well, if people were so poor, uh, why does every why do poor people have iPhones? But of course, it's like, well. If perhaps uh, proper labour laws in place were in place, maybe normal people wouldn't have them. But it's all about the fact that you know relies on slave labour, et cetera, et cetera, pushing the prices down. Yeah, you know, um, there's the the last chapter of James Bridle's book, New Dark Age. He talks about mm-hmm. I forget who some technocrat. Uh, he mentions that they had this they they gave this speech uh, a few years back about you know if. Um, if people in Rwanda had smartphones, you would not have had the genocide, you know, because in social media, because it would have, you know, and he just, of course, he just skewers that in the end of the book. It's yeah. brilliant. Um, but it, it is sort of this idea that, uh, that, th- that these, these technologies are the evidence of the future, like mm-hmm. full stop. Like there's no, um, that we're living in it, you know, because we're able mm-hmm. to do all these things and have social media. And it's true that like, obviously smartphones and social media allow us to do certain things just like radio and television and previous social milieus allowed people to do certain things. But uh, the idea that that's the future, like like we, we've hit it is, is a really dangerous ideology because all it does is it, it reinforces this kind of presentist mindset mm-hmm. where you then retroactively look at history and go, well, how would all of these things been different? How, how would they be different yeah. um, if they themselves had had smartphones? To me, that's, I mean, it, it's a dumb thing to do anyway, because like you say, it ignores like the labor laws, but it also, yeah. it also like ignores the material reality of technology. Yeah. These things just weren't, they didn't fall out of the sky. No, like, no, no. They're, they're, they're created, they're, mm-hmm. they're built and they rely on uh, cables that crisscross the world and giant yeah. server farms, you know, I mean, it's material. It's not like in the air. Oh, exactly, exactly. But this is the, um, just mentioning just before we got on call, um, and I, we talk about him every single episode, but I'm really influ- influenced by the writings of Todd McGowan. And he calls, you know, the, the capitalist ideology, basically the ideology of promise. And he looks at uh, capitalism, not just in obviously the material relations, but like libidinal the, the libidinal desire for a utopian future and that we can like basically sacrifice anything for the promise of this future that doesn't exist. Um, but yeah, this, this thing of like, oh, te- it, uh, things being faster or things being better is, uh, well, that was a, maybe a Freudian set, but things being faster or things being more connected or things being more technological is just better, not taking into account like other questions like, yeah, labor theory of value and everything like that. And also things like, um, well, talking about like if if in rwanda they had uh you know the 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 iphone blah 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 well they had radio you know a lot of the the um the radicalization and the kind of uh 
communication of how to going about murdering the other group was via radio broadcast. So A, would have yeah. just been faster. But B, you know, there's this question of um, communication in the commons. Obviously, in the olden days, you know, the olden days, you could put something on a public notice board that was kind of just like within the public realm. But um, the encroachment of this privatized corporatist um, capitalistic mode of doing things is encroaching on something that is just as as almost as as uh, integral to human existence on the on the planet as air, you know, communicating ideas to one another, um, and obviously we have that question of um, banning, um, being banned on Twitter, and who gets banned and who decides. And obviously, there's a the thing of like, well, it's a private company, but then like, well, this private company should not have the power, you know, be so big as to basically essentially be more powerful than than a government. And we see so many instances now where, where these single corporations are more powerful. I mean, the example in Ireland is an example where the, com- the, the government caves to the corporation. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Trump ban is a, is a complicated issue, but in one sense, you know, that's a, a president communicating uh, in the way he sees fit, but not being allowed to do so, so on that platform. So yes, it's uh, complicated. Yeah, and you know, the the... The conversation, like around banning, um, mm-hmm. and and uh, the the critics who who say that very thing that that yeah. these techno these these companies should not, I mean, you know, they do like the free speech thing or whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they shouldn't stifle this kind of like communication act or whatever because they know now they're more powerful than the government. Mm-hmm. You know, when this started, I was like, where have you guys been? Like, number one, like that that's mm-hmm. kind of you know, if you want to talk about how much more powerful uh apple is than several you know governments on the planet right now Mm -hmm. and you want to just look at the 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 banning of trump or you know in terms of twitter the banning of trump uh as the evidence of that like follow the money and see where uh you know where something like a smartphone gets made and then tell me yeah yeah Yeah. but you know it's like that but uh, honestly there, there is a i mean the the conservatives in the United States, especially, are really um, starting to turn against big tech. And I, I mm-hmm. um, there, uh, this one, one of these, one of these right wing fascist fools, Josh mm-hmm. Hawley, had this book that was going to come out with, um, like Simon and Schuster, called mm-hmm. "The Tyranny of Big Tech." I was like, that's a title I would have used. Okay, <laughs> and, um, and you know, his his critique is is very is yeah. that is like they're they're yeah. big and powerful, yada yada. But, you know, their main thing is like, well, now we can't now we can't have free speech and cancel yeah, culture yeah, and all this like yeah, these yeah, like yeah, yeah. boogeyman or whatever. Worse, yeah. And uh, of course, they canceled his book contract because he helped to, you know, he like supported this insurrection that we had at the beginning yeah. of the month, you know. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, but I was a little curious to read the book myself because yeah. I remember thinking we're about to enter into the era of like the right wing tech critique. Mm-hmm. And it's going to kind of align, I think, mm-hmm. with maybe even some of the stuff that's talked about in The Social Dilemma. Mm-hmm. And yet again, some of the major issues like the environmental impacts of tech yeah. and like mm-hmm. how it relates to labor law, all of that stuff then pretty much gets ignored. Yeah. Um, and that could, be a, that, that could be a problem if like the left doesn't, you know, Absolutely. start to, you know, no, I, those like, problems. I think this is a, an issue. Um, with everything within discourse at the moment, it's like parsed out between uh, the right and the liberal argument when 
<laughs> unfortunately, like often things can, you know, superficially look similar, like certain critiques, because of course it's like, well, you know, if some, if, if, if one has cancer, one can be like, this is bad, you know, <laughs> but the reasons for it are X or the reasons for it are, you know, a demon has come down and inhabited your body. Do you know what I mean? Right. So it's exactly. just like getting to the right, yeah. the right reasons. Um, and this is always the issue. I mean, and it, it's obviously very convenient for, you know, the liberal side of things because it's like, well, you know, oh, I'm going to cancel this person who's left wing because they are so fascistic, you know, because <laughs> they see sound, you know, they have a similar, um, you know, step one critique of the issue. I think it's, um, I mean, uh, yeah, this uh, Zizek did a, an analysis of this, but you know the Jordan Peterson feminism issue, um, when you know both sides of the the kind of like le let's say you know not universalist feminine feminism and it's like original sense, but the kind of lean in Sheryl Sandberg feminism, you know the Kathy Newman feminism and the uh, Jordan Peterson debate, and you know they're, they're two sides of arguing over the symptomatic issues rather than the actual like deeper material conditions. Uh, issues that lead to the symptom in and of itself and unfortunately yeah it, it just all gets it all gets caught up in this sort of binary um and yeah what you know what when at the end of the day like what what is the reason for this person's um critique is for you know retaining one's position within the social order as it stands or retaining a, a bad system you know, a formerly bad system as well. You know, we're going to go back to something that was that was bad in the first place. So, I guess it's about getting to the the deeper reasons as to you know thinking about things as symptoms rather than just like getting caught up in the the shimmer of the surface level issue in and of itself. But yeah, it's um, complicated. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you talk about like having like a, a step one, you know, if you will. Mm -hmm. I really, I like yeah. to think about tech critique as sort of being like a three level system, and these are yeah, you know. Um, like you have to, you have to attend to the, uh, like what happens on an individual level, like, yeah. you know, psychological media effects stuff. Like, I think that's super important. I don't think it can be ignored. And yet it's something that was sort of like first really talked about, uh, at least at like a mainstream level. I mean, there's plenty of great tech, you know, critique that's been out for years and years that it's just like by these excellent academics that like just it doesn't ever it doesn't ever drift its way into the public view like mm -hmm. something like the social dilemma does for example yeah and so there's like the psychological effects of big tech and then you have to take a go the step up and talk about you know what happens at the political level radicalization you mm -hmm. know um the racism of algorithms and what have you what happened in you know the UK with the uh, the A level exams and mm -hmm. how these things sort of foreclose possibilities and whatnot, um, and then just the rise of right wing thinking or whatever in places mm -hmm. like Facebook. And then you got to take the next step up, you know, yeah. which is very hard to do, which is yeah. to talk sort of about um, how these companies are allowed to exist thanks to not yeah. only like what you might consider like a neoliberal ideology, but mm -hmm. actual like real laws in place that that give them the space to be this big and and they're it's sort of you know they're like the logical conclusion of capitalism mm -hmm. with 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 the foot off the brake if you will you know yeah, absolutely um and and uh I, it's hard to do that because at each of these levels you're going to have people who have certain interests at stake that will then be jeopardized if they make mm -hmm. that critique this is one of my issues with the social dilemma is that these guys know and they've they've talked about this on their the and I call them the social dilemma guys. Their thing is called the Center for Humane Tech, and 
it used to be called time well spent, but you know, for years they advocated for new kinds of apps and mm-hmm. new kinds mm-hmm. of social media and whatnot that we can use to help us get us off the old social yeah. media. But there's no indication that that would be any different whatsoever than, than the Absolutely. attention economy. And yeah. because, you know, if they were to really call out, you know, like uh, the attention economy for what it is, they'd probably be out of a job. Absolutely. Because the thing is, it's like, this is, you know, what is so, it makes kind of an, an, analyzing all these things so difficult in, in the history. I mean, you know, as Marx mentions a million times, you know, well, everything that's sacred is profane. So, you know, it, it's all, everything becomes, goes from like these kind of codified cultural norms to like any anything goes under capital capitalism. So, anything can become anything else and it's all about like the ide- the ideology behind it and this this promise of accumulation or well failed accumulation because if accumulation works you wouldn't have to keep accumulating but like this idea that um if we tweak it it'll be better if we do this it'll be better it's all about sort of this futurality rather than just like yeah understanding how the whole libidinal and economic system works in the first place and yeah so we get these sort of you know it's interesting this debate about um in the UK, there's, there's these two sort of like Instagram activists at the moment. There's this big debate about, you know, um, how they have weaponized identity politics for their own kind of brand. But almost it's like, well, is it inevitable? You know, they're like, it's, it's not about the identity politics or saying like, I'm an activist. It's about, you know, absolute, like it's, it's, it's beyond the level of just signifies. It's like a core kind of like, um, relationship with the world or, you know, motivation with, you know, what you're there for. Is it like a universalist motivation for um, making the world better for people or kind of caught up in this belief that like, oh, you know, capitalism is the promise and it'll lead us to this promised land. And yeah, I don't know. It's um, it's so hard to talk about. It's so hard to like articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But it's interesting. I also wanted to talk about, um, so just talking, you know, like, labor theory of value kind of question. Um, because obviously automation, I mean, if we think about like Marx's idea that um, uh, value is generated by sacrifice, you know, <laughs> and conditions of the working class and, you know, kind of about, you know, workers in, in Manchester, there's this example of like this lace being super expensive because it involves like tiny children, you know, this is in the 19th century, making this beautiful lace for wealthy women and it involves the sacrifice of tiny hands and they might go blind because they're seeing white on white and so it's that level of sacrifice that generates value in kind of the Marxist analysis and obviously with with tech when it's just automated duplication and the only people employed by these companies are high high paid um, sort of coders and managers um, there's no distribution of value because there's no um, a that value is kind of invented um, because if we see actual value is like you know workers workload generating the value so the value of like digital duplication must just be invented just as like financialization is sort of those invented zeros um you know which is just basically like capitalist ideology on steroids but also like it's just going to completely um create uh inequality if workers have not participated in the generation of the value of the thing um, and also, how can the worker purchase something if they do not have an income to purchase it? And obviously, that's, you know, one of the main issues in Marx in terms of how capitalism could disintegrate. You know, you, the uh, bosses are motivated to underpay workers and workers don't have enough to buy the product. Like, 
Mm. Where do we go? So well, what the what what tech will say is that they'll advocate for universal basic income, mm-hmm. and they'll be mm-hmm. like, "Well, then yeah. we'll just pad their pockets so they can, you know, just keep buying our stuff." And that, you know, like obviously in the, in the United States, we're kind of sitting here, everybody's waiting on their checks with the pandemic because it's just people are losing work and whatnot, and like yeah. in situations like this, like yeah, like that kind of money could obviously help, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people. Um, but you know, the, of course, we know that the the issue with universal basic incomes is that it's it it kind of throws money into problem and doesn't do anything yeah. related to yeah. like meeting people's needs as they are. Mm-hmm. Like that money would be better used, obviously, to like have better public services. Like in the U.S., mm-hmm. we still don't have uh, healthcare as a human right, which is just out just outrageous. Like, can you believe it? But. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but, but then, you know, the issue with like, with like automation, um, is that the fears of automation are real because obviously mm-hmm. we're starting to see like the, the elimination of jobs by mm-hmm. algorithms. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, <clears throat> what ends up happening is that automation there then again becomes this kind of marketing tactic again a kind of form of smart washing let's trust the the automated processes to do x y and z mm-hmm. um, when in fact a lot of those processes are also worked on by you know underpaid gig workers essentially it's what mm-hmm. astra taylor calls it a uh, photomation like fake automation she's like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. it's kind of like the thomas jefferson dumbwaiter thing it looks mm-hmm. like a piece of technology, but really there's like slaves underneath, like making sure that yeah. the, the thing works. And yeah. so, you know, and, and so there's a lot of good writing out there on content moderators and mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. these kinds of people who just, you know, these workers who get paid not very much and have to yeah. work in pretty horrendous environments, watching all kinds of stuff yeah. posted to social media all day. Um, and, you know, that they are completely erased by yeah, the true. lie of, of an automated yeah. future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And anyway, I mean, yeah, and it is, it is interesting that the only, the, those only jobs are so, so horrendous. I mean, yeah. just spending all day, every day watching like, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to, on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, so like Sarah Roberts has a book called behind the screen. I, I think I, I probably mm-hmm. plug it every time I do an interview. I think it's just essential reading, especially for people who, who see the social dilemma and they're like, you know, by golly, I want to do something about this. And you're like, well, you mm-hmm. didn't get the whole picture. So here, read this also. Um, mm-hmm. But also um, Casey Newton did an article some years back called like the trauma floor or something. Mm-hmm. It's also mm-hmm. about content moderators. And the first time I read it, I mean, I thought it was satire. It was so, it was so insane yeah. to read. So about. Insane, yeah. um, I mean, I guess it's like, it's the, it's the new sort of like telemarketing kind of job. Um, yeah. Mm. But it's awful. Mm. um although that job is also awful in many ways the other the other aspect about sort of um where the labor goes like obviously when we look at like uh social media the amount of labor that is put in by the people posting like, you know, uh, on their you know self-generated value but the, and the, the promise you know there's always this sort of um promise that it could be you and obviously you know you're talking just earlier about america um having this hard work ideology and you know if you you know if you don't don't work, to, uh, do you even exist? And I always find it funny that, well, it's not funny, but you know, on Auschwitz, the, the um, motto was work shall set you free. So it's, and I obviously, Nazism being like an apt and kind of a, um, I don't know, not necessary, well, necessary immersion of capitalism, liberalism in a way, but anyway, um, 
so yeah, there's a huge amount of, of like labor being done on the platforms. And the promise is um, you could be one of these people with 2 million followers, mm. uh, not working. You know, these people, they don't work. They, they just post videos all day and uh, get sponsored to do it. And how fucking fantastic is that? But of course, I mean, I have a lot of friends who happen to be YouTubers or they were like the early generations of YouTubers. And it's the most like... Uh, labor intensive like content generation career mm. but it's also sold it's all sold in this sort of freedom it's not work it's just you know having fun mm. uh, but those yeah those the people posting you know with their two million followers it would just be the most like horrendously stressful existence in my opinion yeah absolutely i mean i think i i, I believe it was um mark andreevich and gosh i hope mm -hmm. this is correct who who wrote about um, the shift from the work of watching to the work of yeah. being watched? Yeah. And gosh, I, I hope that's that's who said that. Um, but uh, yes, I misquote the, all the time. So yeah, you know. <laughs> I know, like, it just comes. It's like a soup in my head, and I have to like. You know. Yeah. But yeah, so the, so the idea of of um, of posting and engaging with social media as a kind of labor. Mm -hmm. where unpaid labor, where your, um, your hope is to eventually maybe get paid uh, through advertisements, sponsorships, or from the platform itself, I guess, you know, where you can have so many followers that then starts to generate a kind of income. Um, so you have to like be this perpetual intern on Facebook for years and years and years or Instagram or what have you until you can get there. And meanwhile, uh, the work that's being done is that you're you're basically providing these companies with loads of information about yourself that they then, um, you know, prepare for the advertisers to advertise things to you, mm -hmm. and uh, and and the 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 act of doing that it's not only like the hours logged, like how many hours in a day do you scroll and mm -hmm. post and blah blah blah, um, but also sort of the the um, emotional wear and tear, these intangibles, this tangible kind of toll um, on your your um, physical and, and, and mental health of having to not only engage with content all the time, which mm -hmm. itself can be kind of damaging to the brain and the soul, um, but also um, having to like consider yourself kind of brand that's yeah. immutable and Mm -hmm. And and then then therefore legible so that yeah. people can see you and that you don't change and, yeah. and whatnot and um and and that that could that could I mean you know when I was early early on Facebook and I had a band and we were like okay well if you have a band what do you do well you make a page on Facebook and you have to promote and mm -hmm. well, who do you promote to well you promote to the people that you're connected with on Facebook well who mm -hmm. are they well they're called my friends on Facebook so I mm -hmm. refer to them now as my friends so there's that. And who are they? Well, some of them are actually real life friends. And some of them are people that you went to school with, people that you know in your community, whatever. And so I have to now connect with them. And so I'm going to promote them constantly to try to get them mm -hmm. to come out to my shows and, mm -hmm. and all of this. That process is what pretty much radicalized me into a critic of tech because it was so soul sucking mm -hmm. and awful to have to yeah. constantly network. And, and then yeah. Facebook does the, does the double injustice by, by calling them your friends. And, yeah. and that is just, it's a really horrible thing. And, uh, and you have to be able to endure that mm -hmm. uh, across all media platforms to be able to possibly be that person yeah. with two million followers who then doesn't Absolutely. work for I them. Mean, 
it's funny because it's like what other like weird um, mutation of capitalism uh, is the one that we all know where you have to market to your family and friends the MLM you know <laughs> where you kind of like you sell your you know you get sucked in this horrible pyramid scheme and you have to constantly fob off your product to your friends I know it, it's it is so you know the, the, the other becomes a, a commodity or you know a uh, yeah, uh, somebody to sell to. It's it's really depressing, and maybe this is where we can kind of bring in um, the film for today. <laughs> was supposed to be Cronenberg's uh, Videodrome. We always talk like super tangentially, but you know, what's obviously you know this is early on in the kind of uh, emergence of various forms of tech, and Cronenberg is very surrealist and absurdist and like body horror. But it sort of analyzes this question of the more like subjectival bodily. Um, implications of of this like uh new form of uh living with technology and you know that was something that i found really interesting what you were talking about on the on the video um with zero books um is this kind of like bodily connection and obviously you know um yeah the the affect that that conjures up this kind of like horrible horrible dirtiness to to feeling like you're constantly promoting yourself this idea as well i mean this podcast is called estranged because it's like as human speaking subjects, we we are estranged even from ourselves. You know, estranged from like labor, we're estranged from us. Like, I don't know who I am. Like, I change day to day. I sometimes look in the mirror and I think, like, oh, I look like this. And sometimes, you know, I've brushed my hair. I look like this. Or today, I feel happy. Today, I'm writing. Today, I'm being lazy. You know, it's like it's not like we are these like perfect digestible products or digestible um, versions of a person. Um, yeah, and it's horrible to have to keep presenting yourself in that light. But there was, um, you know, you talked about in the video about um, how these, you know, there's sort of this um, uh, morality bootstrapping about spend less time on your phone. I'm somebody who's worked here and I know it's really bad and you should put down the phone. You should eat an apple a day. You should work eight hours and you should not spend time scrolling on social media. But of course, it's like, not as simple as that because it's designed to have this kind of like complete libidinal investment from you. I think you talked about mm. uh, the way you presented mm. things. Um, as you say, this like, you know, the naming of things, your followers, your friends. Um, yeah. And, and even it's interesting, like I, I sometimes feel like there's something very like weirdly unconscious about it where it knows more about you than you do about yourself. Although, I mean, what is there to know? Like, what is the thing that's knowable? What is the self? But, you know, you can tell, sometimes I get a bit worried if I'm advertised something like, um, you know, uh, see a therapist online or something, or like mm -hmm. yeah. feeling depressed, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, yes, yeah. there's something, you know. Instagram thinks that I am interested in that film, like, what is it, Killer Clowns from Outer Space or whatever, right. it's like 80s film. I've never seen it. No, like I don't. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I get it. I get it often, and I, I have, I have yeah, yeah, zero yeah. idea. Yeah, you know where that comes from. Yeah, that comes that, from, yeah, that that kind of that that morality. You know, eat an apple a day kind of thing. You know, that is uh, also a major problem because technology that we use every day is institutionalized. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. people start jobs and it's like we're, we provide you with a smartphone well you know because you don't have one well I don't want a smartphone well too bad you have to use one okay um, or uh, you know or you know my students constantly being plugged into their emails and the different kinds of um, educational apps that they have to use many of them like they're they start to use these at a very early age I've I've written about class dojo before as being one of mm -hmm. the really problematic mm -hmm 
educational apps that is just disgustingly competitive in, in its yeah. ideological, um, yeah. you know, makeup and, you know, and, and then you're going to have the audacity to tell somebody to put down their phone because, because what is seen is just aimless, mindless scrolling and looking at memes. I'm yeah. like, yo, they're on there for more than just that. They're on there for their yeah. jobs. They, Absolutely. You know, it's the same way with telling someone to, to like eat healthier. It's like, they, you yeah. know, what if you can't afford it? We don't have the time to do it. You exactly. Know what I mean? like, exactly. What if the whole thing is designed to prevent you from being able to, um, yeah. When I yeah. was a student, I didn't have any money, so I ate a bunch of terrible food. You're going to tell me, yeah. and I had to be on my phone all the time because of, of classes. You're going to tell me to change those things? Like, it's very, it's it's cruel. I know, I have to say, I, the, uh, not to be too sort of like um, indiscreet about it, but the, the college that I went to is like highly, 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 um, you know, pushing you to, to perform and all this kind of stuff. But then on the other side, there was always this, oh, well, if you push yourself beyond this very specific tiny point where you fall off the edge and you get chronic fatigue or seriously ill, well, oh, you know, you were too, you took it all too seriously, didn't you? That yeah. It's just this, this whole yeah. like ridiculous ideological trap. And we, we end up living in this tiny ledge of like, right, so I'm supposed to be, if I don't respond to an email now in 45 minutes, then it says something, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, no, I'm, I'm now part of this WhatsApp group for whatever and if I leave it's going to look really rude and it's going to hurt everybody's feelings but now I'm getting 50 whatsapp messages a day um yeah and it's just why didn't you like my post <laughs> it's just hard yeah hard. right um yeah it's 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 really it's really intense and yeah we, we're living in this tiny like thread of what you know you you have to uh, use all this tech up to a certain point but then you know beyond that you know absolutely don't it's um mm -hmm. Yeah, it breeds yeah. anxieties um, very well, uh, yeah. and yeah, and absolutely. keeps people in this uh, like heightened uh, state all the time. And yeah, yeah, no, I know. We're talking about you know the long term health implications of various things. Obviously, COVID has long term health implications. Lockdowns have long term health implications. And this level of of especially now, you know, um, connection through, I kind of felt like the first couple of weeks of the first lockdown in like March, it was really nice to connect people via Zoom and all this kind of stuff. And then it just becomes, this, there's a level of, um, it's this mediated human react, uh, human interface that it, it feels, it, it, it adds, as you say, like a level of anxiety that is just really horrible, that, that actual human, proper human interaction and meeting people where they are as people just doesn't, doesn't have to that extent so yeah this year i'm sure yeah the the anxiety induced by tech has been even higher than than it usually would be mm -hmm. um yeah and i i'm also really I'm, I'm interested not only in the in like the mental health implications but also like just the like the physical health mm -hmm. of uh not just working from home for so many people but i, I mean you know like we, it's been well documented that sitting at a desk all day on a computer is is like just as bad as like smoking a bunch of cigarettes you know i think, yeah. I think yeah. somebody said sitting is the new smoking i mean it's it's extremely important to remember that uh there's a there's a a biological health um consequence to to craning your neck down all the time to look at and you know and, and like who has a properly set up ergonomically safe, um, you know, office, especially one, I mean, you know, one that can be thrown together in, in the middle mm -hmm. of a sudden lockdown, 
that was one mm -hmm. of the some of the memes that showed up online at the, at the very beginning of the pandemic was you know people people's strange looking like um desk setups and configurations yeah. they had to throw together at the last minute to be able to work and yeah. uh that you know that is that is hell on the body uh yeah, absolutely. and of course if you're feeling physically bad yeah you don't even have to be you know suddenly now you feel mentally bad and those things mm -hmm. become sort of that kind of constitute one another. So I'm, I'm interested in, in, in those effects as well. Yeah, and I guess the thing is, I mean, funnily enough, talking about like bad neck problems because of sitting in the wrong way and using your phone too much, I have this like really bad like T3 to T4 like neck strain that like won't go away. And it's obviously from like slightly, you know, that kind of yeah, slight I'm movement. There. That, yeah. yeah, it's... Uh, and as you say, yeah, it affects your sleep. It like puts you in a bad mood. It's, but the thing is, I mean, you know, obviously that's that's one one thing. But then it's all um, in the name of or um, funneled towards a few select owners <laughs> in a way that, like, um, obviously farming or being a farmhand back in the day was like immensely. Um, you know, stressful on the body, although it involved being outside and all these kinds of things. But, you know, you might have been a tenant farmer or uh, it wasn't this one soul. Obviously, you know, there's a feudal configurations as, you know, the king and then God. But like you, we have, you know, there's an element of this neo-feudal thing that's uh, all going up to this one one person at the top mm -hmm. of the, at the top of the chain. It's um, yeah, it's very it's very worrying. It's very worrying. Um, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I really like uh, David Cronenberg's song, David Cronenberg's films are so weird and like weirdly executed and just strange. But um, it was very, uh, this film, Videodrome, he also has another one, Existence, but they um, they deal with sort of this, um, the way that a new um, product, a new uh, audiovisual product can can really warp and um enter into your your very being and effect i mean this is the thing as well it's like um i'm really into psychoanalysis and that um talking about like what is uh, your natural self or your true self or whatever but that, that the sub whatever form of subjectivity you have is like generated out of the material conditions of the world that you're born into essentially you know it really affects like the very way that you perceive the world and so yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I have a, I have a two-year-old nephew who who lives in Spain. I FaceTime all the time, um, and he's getting a bit like wise to the fact that he doesn't have to perform to me on FaceTime now. So it's a bit annoying because he's so cute. But he he now you know he'll be swiping, looking for his YouTube video, his like old McDonald YouTube video, and it's really strange to see like a a two-year-old you know engage with the screen. And so it must be so weird uh, mm. being that age and this like people popping up on this like two-dimensional screen endlessly so weird yeah yeah um yeah and that there is some research out there on like um you know uh the you know what happens in childhood development with digital technology i mean it 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 could quickly turn into this sort of like neil postman kind of like you know save the children kind of thing which yeah, you know, exactly. I, don't, I don't think he's all bad <laughs> no. you know but yeah um there it could suddenly you know become this thing like the like the what kind of amounted to a bit of a moral panic of, of television mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. back in the day. But, you know, one of the reasons why I like um, uh, Cronenberg uh, and Videodrome in particular is that he he's, his, you know, more, his films about technology, mm -hmm. like Videodrome, they, they, they function as uh, sort of the anti 
singularity ideology, mm-hmm. which is, you know, the idea that we can, our consciousness can leave our body and then be uploaded into mm-hmm. a computer program and we could live, have immortality, live forever, yada, yada. And he, he is sort of the anti of that. He, you know, uh, his films never, they never forget the fact that we are embodied beings mm-hmm. and have bodies and blood and guts walking around and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, this is something that in Catherine Hales wrote about in the 1990s when she was writing about um, the belief that, you know, your, your information or your code, which is kind of like your soul or consciousness, mm-hmm. or whatever, can be mm-hmm. kind of peeled off your body and then like inserted yeah. in a machine. And it's like the, the, the information of human mm-hmm. cannot be so easily separated from Absolutely. the body that houses it. And I think, yeah. uh, I think people, I think they know that. Yeah, because like you say, you could feel the crick in your neck after a long day at the yeah. computer. You can feel you yourself getting kind of anxious, whatever, scrolling too much. We we have words like doom scrolling that we use to, to mm-hmm. talk to like talk about this. I think we know that, but I think that we are still very much seduced by the fantasy that mm-hmm. maybe we can solve all the problems and leave Absolutely. the body behind mm-hmm. um, and float like data. But Absolutely. Talking. So yeah, no, psychoanalysis has this insight or like. Freud certainly um, and Lacan that that subjectivity is just uh, because of lack is just like the 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 inherent void that is like um, so what separates us from animals you know we're animals but the only thing that's different is that we are lacking beings and because of this like essential split from being born too early as a human and essentially fetus until 18 months and then split from your mother that generates language and language is subjectivity so it's just it's it's not a thing it's a not thing you know like language only exists because of a frustration of not having so it's all it's all about gaps it's all about so you can't really upload a not thing or like it's only it's only because it's like we are animals minus something we're not animals plus something you know mm-hmm. it's it's the, it's the relief that creates the subjectivity so yeah it just is like it's weirdly um it's this really positivistic thing that like often things are like um, counted as with under capital capitalism, but it's like, actually no, like what makes us human is, is this lack. And then Tom McGowan would, would argue that like the ideology of promise of capitalism is this idea that we can, we can make up that gap through accumulation or products or a thing or an ideology, but we, we can't because to do that would be to return to death, uh, the womb tomb or to be a vegetable and non-speaking subject. So this is, this is the thing, like, capitalism is, is about trying to, like, overcome that gap. But if mm. we can understand ourselves as, like, necessarily lacking beings, and that's, like, actually a generative thing and something that shouldn't be papered over, then, you know, maybe we can, like, uh, you know, come to a different conclusion about how we should structure society. Um, but, yeah, mm. no, it is, it is funny how everything, that kind of, like, scientistic-y, like, positivistic-y, like, it's all about a new thing. You know, mm. but actually this like l- this lack haunts us for for all time. And it's interesting, you know, you you write you were writing about like ghosts in your 2016 book, right? Con- commodification of ghosts. Yeah, to an extent. I mean, like uh yeah. like using um using what is called ontology as like a framework yeah, yeah, for yeah, like, yeah. understanding yeah. things. So yeah. ontolo- the 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 sample of ontology as what Mark Fisher, like he said, he, he liked to, he sampled Derrida's term or whatever, but yeah, he, yeah, yeah. like that kind of frame, um, which of course itself, like, you know, is based off of um, the absence, you know, the showing yeah. up for the returning, but it's for the first time and yeah. it has no origin point or what have you. But yeah, I mean, it, you know, capitalism does a very good job 
mm-hmm. at sort of manufacturing these lacks and gaps mm-hmm. and crises that have to be yeah. sort of, you know, filled in by us purchasing, you know, everything from, you know, cologne and perfume and deodorant because we smell mm-hmm. bad and that's a problem. Yeah, uh, exactly. Capitalism, uh, or, you yeah. know, uh, a piece of tech, you know, a, a ring yeah, doorbell yeah. because it's a problem that you can't monitor yeah. what's going on in your front door. And, and there, but there is again, like, I think a, an acknowledgement by so many people that, that that's just a gimmick. And, and there's yeah. great writing on this. Um, Siang guy does this, um, I think I just probably mis- mispronounced their name, but uh, it's written all about the gimmick. Um, mm-hmm. They just came out with a, a a great new book about this, um, and Mackenzie Wark actually has has written about this um, as well. And uh, but the idea that that like you know capitalism in doing this and trying to sh- you know sell you the the thing, convince you there's a gap, and then sell you the thing to fill it uh, is, uh, is itself, uh, you know, people recognize it mm-hmm. as kind of a gimmick. And so therefore there's this constant like suspicion of, yep. of, of everything under capitalism sold or otherwise. Um, and the, 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 the wondering whether or not it's, you know, just another gimmick and where the line yeah. is, like, what do I really need? Yeah. You know, yeah. do I really need all of these, smart speakers in my house right now yeah you know i mean which yeah. i don't yeah. have any by the way i should probably <laughs> but um yeah but yeah no it's interesting because like there, there is this thing yeah that like so we have this essential lack and then like capitalism like problematizes or like um positivizes the lack as a thing so it's like a no thing that becomes like a thing as a lack that needs to be filled rather than just like no this is just like the void of the universe and like it can't be filled in um but also there was another thing that you said that that sparked a thought. Yeah, but it's also interesting that like we can, I mean, because this is how ideology functions, we can like rationally be skeptical and yet we are all like within this libidinal investment in the promise of something new that like, you know, the fact that we even question it means that there's like a, a dual side of it that it hasn't, we can never quite you know, get there or it's very difficult to get there to realize like this is actually pointless. It's like maybe... It, I know I'm suspicious, but maybe it will work, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think things are always operating at like multiple levels. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And as I say, like, as you pointed out with it, with like the right wing critique, it's so disappointing. And I guess it was ever thus, but like, it's just when you, when you see it within your own moment, um, how, how frustrating it is that it means that, you know, legitimate analyses can be completely, you know, eradicated because, um, some sort of fascistic right winger doesn't like tech, but you know, they don't like it for different reasons. Let's just say, um, but yeah, and therefore the only other option is to be on the side of like liberal capital and just be like, it's fine, you know, or like it to to to, to think otherwise is to be a baddie. It's um, yeah, it's really mm-hmm. tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, any other thoughts before we before we uh, close it off? Um, no, other than, uh, you know, when people come and tell me that they watched the social dilemma and, and they're like, you know, I always knew it was something bad. I didn't really know it was, that was, can you believe that's what one, the whole world isn't, uh, messed up because big Mm -hmm. tech 
fell out of the sky. Okay. Yeah. Several things existed that got exacerbated by big tech. Certain things um, have nothing to do with tech and screw up the yeah. world and they spill over yeah. into the tech world and vice versa. Um, and then also there is great writing and work out there by a number of scholars about tech, many of them not white tech bros like the ones mm -hmm. who made Social Dilemma. Uh, and they they talk about the 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 workers behind our technologies to talk about how tech impacts the environment, um, the the you know embedded sort of intolerance and racism mm -hmm. of algorithms, how algorithms foreclose the future. Yeah. Um, and that that stuff's gonna help you get a wider picture of the exactly. tech problem than just mm -hmm. a Netflix documentary in which a bunch yeah. of white guys tell you to put down your phone. You know? Yeah, and like scaring you into getting to that point of anxiety of I need to use it, but not that much. And obviously the precarity of anxiety is so convenient for, for the expansion of capitalism. You know, anxiety, it, re it relies on this kind of like perpetual um, feeling that you need to fix yourself. But in, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not just like tech big T as this like, you know, blob thing that just needs to be like railroaded to return to some utopia because that's also like an ideology of promise it's like you know i'm sure when when the the steam engine first was invented people probably thought that they were going to like their brains are going to we're going to explode from traveling so fast you know it's not it's not just about the actual like thing it's as you say it's all of the undercurrents the ideological justifications the political economy you know the material conditions that like play into this um, you know, and everything just is potentially on steroids when it comes to to uh, the issues that we're talking about at the moment. But yeah, um, and book available just uh, um, on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's available everywhere. Um, yeah, and you can. Uh, yeah, I'm actually just right now also finishing up um, another book that will be out in October of this year. Um, that is specifically on like the politics of nostalgia, and there's some stuff in there about tech. Um, so that'll be out later this year. Interesting. Yeah. That would be, uh, be interesting to read it. Nostalgia is an interesting one. Yeah. It's kind of like retrospective utopia, but, um, yeah, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, thank you so much for listening and until next time. <laughs>